lasso. This afternoon, of course, we return to the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. This time, as we did in the first round, we'll return to the meditation very close to how the Buddha himself taught it. Kindness. And it's here, as you may recall, it's spatial. And that is, one just simply directs the attention to the, to the north, south, east, and west, to the intermediate directions above and below. And just like, you can think of all kinds of images coming up, but just like an expanding field of benevolence is really the idea. But bear in mind, it's not simply a warm and cuddly feeling. Uh, that point, I think, really cannot be overemphasized. It's not just sending out, I feel good, I feel so good, I feel so good. You know, that's a nice song, but it's not loving kindness. It's rather really this aspiration, the aspiration. So as we will do it here, this afternoon, we'll start right in the center. And this is so much a matter of moving from the realm of actuality into the realm of potentiality, embracing the possible, embracing the possible as a method for turning the possibility into actuality. And that's what really what loving kindness is all about. It's not simply attending to what is already the case, that might be good for empathetic joy, but for loving kindness, it's attending to what is and then considering what could be. And we start with ourselves. So envisioning, bringing to mind at least a greater sense. It doesn't have to be ultimate, but at least a greater sense of how we may flourish. You know, uh, perhaps there's some makeup work to be done hedonically. Maybe we really need still a little bit of support in terms of meeting our hedonic needs. In which case, that's important. Absolutely important. And on the basis of that, then, of course, the cultivation of genuine happiness. So envisioning this for ourselves, aspiring for it. Once again, we'll use the visualization for anyone who would like to accept as a working hypothesis the notion of Buddha nature, that this really is the depths of your own being. It's a really, to my mind, it's really kind of, um, how do you say, there's no downside to it. If it turned out to be the case that we don't have any Buddha nature, it was still a really good, good idea as long as it lasted. And so, but of course, I'm utterly persuaded that this is in fact our deepest nature, Buddha nature, pristine awareness, call it what you will. So once again, we'll visualize that if you wish, symbolically at the heart as an orb of light with each out-breath breathing out, this light of loving kindness, light of joy, light of this aspiration of loving kindness. And we'll start again very personally, obviously it doesn't get much more personal than ourselves, but then here we are in this, this room then as we extend the field, extend it, by now we're slowly getting to know each other, so extend it to those immediately around you, uh, so embrace them in this field, this field of aspiration, this field of loving kindness, of benevolence, and then outwards, outwards, outwards. And so obviously when it's right there at home, where you are, it's very personal, because you know what your aspirations are, the more distant we go out to, well, what are, what, what, what are, really, the, what are really the aspirations of the staff here? the people who work over there in the dining hall, the people maintaining the grounds here and so forth. Really, what are their aspirations? Apart from just making a living, which everybody wants, well, we don't really know. We don't really know, because we don't, number one, I don't know if anybody here speaks Thai fluently. Oh, of course, at least one person, at least one person. But there we are. So there's one, there's one inroad. You can actually speak with them, but here we are in silence, so then even if you speak Thai, we don't have a whole lot of opportunity here. But there they are, whether we can speak their language or not, whether we know the details of their aspirations or not, we can certainly get the gist of it. And that is, each one of them wishes to be happy, to find greater sense of fulfillment, sense of security, of safety, of fearlessness. And so, 
as that field goes out and out and out, in a sense it may feel like it's getting thinner and thinner, almost like an electromagnetic field that, that uh, tapers off according to inver- inverse square law or a gravitational field, the same thing. That it gets weaker and weaker as it goes out. Well, it doesn't have to be because this is not physics, this is the mind. So it doesn't have to be weaker. But of course, the details of what the people in the surrounding, let's say the one, one kilometer radius from where we are right now, what are their aspirations? Well, then we just go, what are the deepest aspirations? What, what can we assume is common? Each one, I think we can assume, wishes to be free of suffering. Each one is finding a greater sense of well-being, We'd like to find greater happiness and so on. So it goes out and out and out, really without boundary. And what the, the practical value of this is, on the one hand, it transforms, it opens up one's own heart. It also, though, it puts us in a position like a charged field or a charged battery, whatever you like. And that is, as one comes out of this room following the meditation, it's like one is carrying a field, maintaining a field of loving kindness around one, that is primed, primed, so that if we see some opportunity where we can actually do something that would be conducive to somebody else finding happiness and the causes of happiness, we're already, re- we're already ready. The battery is charged. We're ready, we're ready for action. So we haven't spent the last half an hour just thinking about I, me, mine, and I want this, and I want that, and would you please get out of my way? You know? It's actually something larger. So that's kind of the point. Something like that. So, let's go back to the practice. Before we plunge in, I'm going to follow the uh, request, grant the request of one person here, that while we'll have our 24-minute session, Rather than just having about a minute or so of just silence coming into the center at the end, we will end on that same note. You will hear the three chimes. But then what I'll suggest is for about 10 minutes after that, we simply remain in quiet meditation. Uh, if at, the, at that point, after 24 minutes, if your body is feeling uncomfortable, then just very quietly, as quietly as you can, just roll into the supine or roll into something more comfortable. For those already in the supine, you're set. Don't move. Don't change anything. Right? But I would like you, of course, not to be in physical discomfort if you can remain, so you, just so you can have some anticipation, about 10 minutes after the initial 24 minutes, a time just to let assimilate whatever has arisen from the meditation, let it assimilate. So you may want to continue in awareness of awareness, or you can go to any of the, any of the other practices, or simply continue as you wish. But have a little bit longer, and I will be silent during those 10 minutes. So you can just go for assimilation, see whether that's helpful or not. Okay? That will take a little bit away from our discussion time, but maybe that's a good cost-benefit analysis. Okay? So this would be wind up being a 34-minute session. Okay? Very good. It is said in the classic Buddhist literature that broadly speaking there are two ways of cultivating love and kindness. One is from inside out 
cultivating it in solitude and meditation, and then seeking to let that manifest out in the world through our activities. But there is another way as well, and that is to first of all act in a benevolent way, a loving and caring way. Simply behave in that way, and then see how such behavior percolates inwards and actually begins to modify how you attend to others. So we can go from the inside out or the outside in. Let's do both in this session. Let's behave, first of all, in a loving fashion, by gently and lovingly, letting our awareness descend into the field of the body, and in a spirit of loving-kindness, of benevolence, settle your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm, and gently and soothingly calm the discursive mind with mindfulness of breathing. practice shamatha of any of the three methods emphasized in this retreat, 
we are focusing on the world of actuality that is occurring here and now. There's great value in that. But there's also great value in attending to the world of possibility. Direct your attention now to possibilities of your own flourishing, of ways you may find a much deeper and more satisfying sense of well-being, of fulfillment and meaning in your life than you had ever experienced before. Perhaps beyond your wildest dreams in the past, but let your dreams go wild now. Envision your heart's desire, what would truly make you happy. Consider the possibility that the roots of this vision lie in the depths of your own heart, the deepest roots in the deepest dimension of your awareness, pristine awareness, and visualize that dimension as a radiant incandescent orb of white light at your heart. And with each out-breath, imagine a bounty of light rays emerging from this orb of light, saturating every cell in your body, filling the entire body, saturating, permeating your mind, every element of your being, with every outbreath as you arouse the yearning. May I find genuine happiness and the causes of such happiness.
letting your imagination play, imagine realizing such well-being here and now. So fill your being with this light from your heart that you come to a point of supersaturation, completely filled to overflowing. And imagine this field, this field of light and of benevolence, expanding in all directions to the sides above and below. with each outbreath, as if you are inflating it greater and greater. As the light from your heart fills it, embrace those who are sitting in your immediate proximity, perhaps in front or behind to the sides. And with each outbreath, arouse this yearning. May you, like myself, be well and happy. May your innermost desires be realized. May you find the happiness that you seek. May you firmly and with confidence 
walk the path that will lead you to the realization of your heart's desire. each outbreath gently expand the field out to the next circle of individuals around you Imagine each one as they are embraced within this field, finding the happiness and fulfillment that they seek. Imagine this world of possibility becoming real and actual. Expand to embrace everyone in the room. Then extending out in all directions. Embrace all the sentient beings, human and non-human alike. who share this mind center with us.
expand this field out over the valley, over the entire Phuket International Academy, all the people working so hard in construction, in maintenance, the teachers and children in the school, people involved in ministration. Some working simply to make a living and others devoting themselves to such an ideal to bring something truly good to this world. Whatever their aspirations, we all share this in common. Each one here wishes to find happiness and to be free of suffering. Wish them all well. With each outbreath, continue to expand in all directions to the young and the old, people in all walks of life, Those simply making a living, trying to get by. Those consciously devoting themselves to a life of virtue. And those who out of their own delusion and other mental afflictions are actively creating misery and discord in the world. Each one wishes for happiness. Each one wishes to be free of suffering. So embrace them all. But each one may discover the true causes of happiness for themselves and others and devote themselves to that path of joy.
expand in all directions, embracing the globe and every living being upon it. May each one be well and happy. May we live together in harmony with no one causing harm to another, with no one holding others in contempt. Release all appearances and objects of the mind. Release all aspirations. And let your awareness come to rest in its own nature. With no object and no subject. For the next 10 minutes, you may quietly remain in the flow of this experience of loving kindness. You may move from the discursive to the non-discursive. Or in the spirit of loving kindness, you may return simply to the practice of shamatha, as you wish. Let's practice in silence.
And let's bring the session to a close. So in terms of the aspirations aroused in this meditation, insofar as we're focusing only on the hedonic well-being, wishing that all sentient beings around us may experience hedonic well-being, that's not even in the realm of possibility. The animals all eat each other. All of them. They're either eating someone or they're being eaten by someone. And that's, I think, how almost all animals die. They, they get eaten by somebody. And so to think that all the animals are going to have a happy life, that's kind of tough. Or that all human beings around us are going to be really lucky and experience good fortune, just one wave of hedonic pleasure after another. Not in any world I know of. But as we start to attend more to genuine happiness especially for those who can actually cultivate the causes of such happiness, it might actually turn out to be realistic. And that's a, that's a, that's a happy thought. That's a happy thought. So I've read two articles today. One was about a project that I initiated, the Shamatha Project. And it was written by a journalist who has really wanted to focus on the health angle. That's legitimate. That's legitimate. And there's something very interesting that um, the impact of three months of shamatha meditation together with the four immeasurables has an impact on the telomeres which might, in, might, which might well imply that if you meditate it will extend your lifespan. Now whether that's a good thing or a bad thing was never raised. Is it intrinsically a good to live a long life? I don't think so. There are people really doing criminals. There are people who are doing really behaving awfully, who are abusive, who are exploitative, who are dishonest. Is it really good for them or anybody else if they have a long life? I'm not advocating murder. But is there any good in a life that is pointless being extended? And that is the ideal I get from a number of of cases as we approach, approach the singularity. The singularity of being able to overcome old age and live indefinitely so we can have the world populated with ugly, wrinkly old people who just won't die. But they're collecting social security and sucking the lifeblood out of the young people. And isn't, wouldn't that be a great thing? There's one ideal. Not very carefully thought out, I think. So one researcher involved in the study said, well... Of course, the meditation may be involved, but actually it doesn't really matter what you do. It could be gardening, whatever you find, whatever makes you happy and, make, and, you, and you feel meaningful. In other words, the absolute subject, 
subjectivization of meaning. If you like it and you think it's meaningful, maybe that also will help your telomeres and help, help you live longer. Maybe it's not meditation at all. So the whole point of the shamatha project can just kind of fade out because we could have been gardening. So I found that rather disconcerting. Then I read another article. This one published in BBC. Both of them happened to come out of England. About some researcher in New York who had something like 16 Tibetan Buddhist monks and he wanted to find out what really happens in meditation. So what would you do if you really want to know what happens in meditation? Well, put a monk in an fMRI. That'll tell you what really goes on in meditation. And then the implications was maybe by studying these monks' brains we can, find, we can learn something about Alzheimer's. Not that the monks had Alzheimer's, but perhaps by understanding how their brains work, this might have implications that actually matter. And so in both of these cases, the whole point of Buddhist meditation, whether shamatha or the, these were Tibetan Buddhist monks, so the various incredibly rich and diverse practices, which never came up. That was never mentioned in the article. What meditation we're doing? No clue. What was being done in the shamatha project? What kind of meditation? They cited that it was a shamatha project. They never mentioned what shamatha was. They simply said Eastern relaxation techniques, which, okay, I guess it's kind of that, more or less. Not really. And so in both cases, what happens here is completely an appropriation of meditation to, to, to serve utterly hedonic ends, to live a long life. So as we cultivate love and kindness, I think really we can bring as much wisdom to it as possible. A long life, is it a good thing, irrelevant, or is it a bad thing? In the Buddhist worldview, if you're living a very wholesome life, the longer the better. If you're living a very unwholesome life, the shorter the better. And if your life is irrelevant, it doesn't matter. One wonders, I was reflecting on this this afternoon, if there were a country that, let's say, just let's take an imaginary country that, for which the population is, consists only of 3% of the global population, but that 3% consumes 25% of the world's natural resources. Let's just imagine there's a country of that sort. Would it be a good thing or a bad thing if that country continues for many years ahead. Don't want to mention any names here, but a good thing or a bad thing? I don't want to be unpatriotic, but I think it's a legitimate question. So 20, how many years ago was it? 19 years ago. 19 years ago. I was with a group of neuroscientists, all of them friends of mine. We hiked up into the Himalayas above Dharmasala into the foothills of the Himalayas. Brought $50,000 of equipment, which back then was a lot of money, uh, of neuroscientific equipment, including, but also LCD screens and video cameras, EEG, way up in the mountains above Dharmazala, because the scientists wanted to understand shamatha and compassion. Those are the two questions. And they figured, well, here's some yogis have been up there for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, practicing meditation. Maybe some of them have been on some shamatha. Maybe some have been actually cultivating compassion. And we'd like to know about it. So I was the interpreter for this group. I was the cultural liaison as well as the language interpreter. I remember one monk, I can remember his face, been up there for years and years and years. The scientists came with all their equipment. We'd like to learn about meditation. Can we study your brain? 
And he, he looked at them almost like they just cracked a joke. You know, like, can you tell me another one? <laughs> you know? A lama walked into a bar one day and he met, you know, any, any of that. But he, again, he got serious and said, if you'd like to know about meditation, I'd be delighted to help you. Uh, come and I'll teach you how to practice meditation. And then you'll actually know what meditation does, what the effects are. But for you to think you're going to understand meditation by studying somebody's brain, I'm sorry, but I won't. I'm, I'm not going to help you in that fool's errand. Another one who had actually spent, this was 1992, he had already spent two years in the United States. This was Gelam Rimba. Very, very smart, very well educated. And a yogi's yogi. Boy, was he an just absolutely dedicated yogi. But he lived in the West. He could speak some English. And when the same, so I brought the scientist to him. I mean, he was really one of the most experienced yogis on the mountain. And in a very pleasant way, he told them point after point after point, maybe three or four or five points, why he would not collaborate with them. And I won't tell you all of them, apart from the obvious, if you want to understand meditation, you might, might want to try it. Um, like if you want to know, you know, what the food is like in a really good restaurant. You don't hire a team of chemists to go and analyze the food and tell you exactly the chemical compound of every dish they serve. That would be very interesting for chemists. But it won't give you a clue about whether the food's any good. So for meditation. So that was one big one. Gilam Rimba also had another point, and that is he said that you scientists are all materialists, so whatever you, if I should collaborate with you, he made a number of points. This was one of them. I collaborate with you, you will interpret everything that happens in a materialistic framework, which I'm convinced is wrong, therefore you're going to misrepresent everything that goes on in meditation. And so this taps into a larger issue, and that is, in the Buddhist, Buddhist practice, there are three elements that I must say I'm, I'm profoundly impressed by the interrelated of this and the wisdom that goes into presenting these three as being an integrated whole. Everybody knows it, any educated Buddhist, in Tibetan Buddhism anyway. And Tawa is the way you view reality, it's worldview. It's not just what you believe. There are many things that I believe that really don't influence the way I'm viewing things at all. I believe that Jupiter has moons, but that just doesn't influence the way I view anything, except for I look up at Jupiter and I get, and I look, I get I guess there must be moons there that I can't see because I'm not looking through a telescope. So it's not a matter of simply believing this, that, and the other thing or, even, or just perhaps even giving lip service to certain beliefs, but it's actually the way you view reality. How are you taking it in? What's your vantage point? How do you view the world? So there's one element, worldview, and it certainly includes beliefs, perspectives, emphases. And then related to that then, to, to get the second one is meditation, and this is really practice, the practice so there's Buddhist worldview, for example, and there are definitely nuances, variations from one school to the other, as there are variations and nuances of meditative practices from Theravada, Zen, and so forth. But there's meditation, that whole field of explicit practice. And then there's way of life, and the way of life is that whole way of life in which your specifically Buddhist practice are embedded. Okay? So you're practicing shamatha. Good. What's the broader way of life? Right? You're practicing... Oh, the, the six perfections. You're practicing anapanasati, four immeasurables, whatever you are, but it's always in, embedded in a broader context of how you spend your life. 
How do you do, what, what are you doing for the 16, 17, 18 hours a day that you are awake? And so the point here from Buddhism, and I think it's so profound and so true, is that these three are all profoundly interrelated. So the worldview, the Buddhist worldview, completely supports and makes sense of the meditation. The meditation flows right into the worldview and informs it, illuminates it. So the two have a dynamic going and it's reciprocal. The worldview, the way you're viewing reality and your actual meditative practice, each one influencing the worldview, supporting meditation, meditation fueling, deepening, clarifying your worldview. And then we have a way of life. If this is all integrated, then your whole way of life, what we talk about here, mindful presence, in-between sessions, manifesting the four measurables and so forth, how you're eating your food and all of that, how we engage with the staff and everyone around us, there's a way of life and that way of life can utterly support your meditative practice. So every time you go back to meditation, it's fluid and seamless. The meditation flows out, enriches, deepens, brings virtue and goodness to your whole way of life. That way of life flows over into your worldview for the moment what we attend to is reality. So during the course of our overall way of life, we are attending and attending, attending, and what we attend to becomes real, and that influences our worldview. The worldview flows over to the way of life, enriches it, deepens it, and so the three are all profoundly entangled. And once again, we have a synergy, rather like relaxation, stability, and vividness. There's a synergy here, because they're all, they're all working together. They're all deepening, and there's the wheel of Dharma, rolling towards greater and greater clarity, awakening, and genuine happiness. So there's a, a very profound truth. Now, what's happening frequently, because I see it a lot, and it occurs in these two articles that I just read today, is emphasis on secular Buddhism. Secular Buddhism. As I mentioned yesterday, that could be, first of all, splatting Buddhism with Western stereotypes of religion, and then saying, let's secularize Buddhism by unsplatting it. So just trying to undo the damage you did by, you know, false imputations of categories and classifications. But of course, there are religious elements in Buddhism. They're not just Western make-believe. There are monks, there's incense, there's ritual, there are prayers, and so forth and so on, and we call those religious. It is a Western category, but it's still true of Buddhism, that that's everywhere. Go to any temple here in Thailand, and you'll certainly see clear signs of what in the West would be called religion. Now, in the secular, in people who are promoting secular Buddhism, and and I'll use words that they've actually used, take out all the mumbo-jumbo and take out the claptrap. Those are two words I've seen in print, one in Oxford University Press text. Take out the mumbo-jumbo and the claptrap. In other words, take out anything that doesn't correspond to what we already believe in the West. So anything religious, reincarnation, yuck, and Buddhas and karma and all that mumbo-jumbo. It just doesn't make any sense in a scientific perspective, which is what they really mean is science has no way of grappling with that And it does violate the metaphysical assumptions underlying modern science. So what they're basically saying is strip Buddhism of its worldview. But of course, that doesn't mean that Buddhist practice will be devoid of a worldview. It means you bring in your own. And people are intent on secularizing Buddhism almost invariably. They're not going to bring in Christianity. That's not what they meant. Not when you secularize it. That doesn't mean supplant one religious worldview for another. No, what they're saying is strip Buddhism of its Buddhist worldview and replace it with a materialistic worldview. And keep some of the practices, but not the religious ones, because they're yucky. They're mumbo-jumbo and claptrap. So just keep the ones that are nice and clean, that have no ethical import to them, like bare mindfulness. That's good. We like that. No ethics involved. No worldview involved. 
just keep it nice and clean and simple. Be here now. And the worldview and the way of life, well, be nice. That's not too controversial. And so there's a secularized ver- version of Buddhism. Whereas what, what we now is have, sometimes Tibetans speak of putting the, the, the head of a yak on the body of a sheep. And somehow it doesn't quite fit. So we're putting the head of materialistic worldview on the, on the body of certain Buddhist practices or quasi-Buddhist practices, like in meditation. And then, the world, and then the way of life kind of struggles along somehow. And thinking that one has now grasped the essence of Buddhism. I find that to be mumbo-jumbo and claptrap. Because a materialistic worldview <clears throat> does not support the practice of medication. Of me- uh, how, what a wonderful slip of term, slip of tongue. The materialistic worldview absolutely supports the use of medication for all problems that comes up. Mental, psychological, physical. Find the appropriate pill and then your problems are solved. That is, a, that is definitely an implication of a materialistic worldview. Medication, not meditation. But if you do apply meditation... <clears throat> with a materialistic worldview and a consumer-driven way of life, the meditation is simply designed to help you enjoy more a consumer-driven way of life without ever challenging your materialistic worldview. And so there it is, stranded, orphaned all by itself, and emasculated, sterilized, impoverished, and reduced and appropriated type of meditation that is isolated in the barren field of materialism and consumerism. And it's designed then, in one study, how can we use meditation to understand mental disease better, which would be great, but is that really what the... Is that what Buddhist meditation was there for? That's why it was designed? To help us get back to normal? To try to heal or avert or what have you, treat medical mental disease? So that's what one whole study was about. This can give us insight into mental disease. And here are these Buddhist monks... Not one was interviewed, and we don't have a clue what kind of meditations they were doing. Just that they're doing something special. Their brains seem to work differently. Let's tap into them. Let's pick their brains and pull out of them something that's of value to us within a materialistic framework, hedonic set of values, and a completely consumer-driven way of life. So, as you can see, I'm not a great champion of secular Buddhism because it can't make up its mind. Or basically, it's just saying... Let meditation never challenge our worldview and let it serve our, our own ends, the priorities we already had in place that are embedded in a materialistic worldview, hedonic set of values, and a consumer-driven way of life. And let's see how meditation can help. So meditation in the business place, meditation in education, medication, meditation in sports. How can we make samsara a bit more pleasant? Maybe meditation could be helpful. And so it gets completely appropriated and the whole meaning of meditation vanishes into thin air. So, the three, whether it's a materialistic worldview, practices all oriented around hedonism or hedonic values and a, way, and a consumer-driven way of life, those three absolutely support each other. And that is, if you view, it's the way you view reality is that only material phenomena and their emergent properties are real, that's all you will value. And as you value those, they will tend to them and they will seem to be real. You'll live a whole way of life that's oriented around them. So those three will absolutely support themselves, just as a Buddhist worldview, values and way of life support each other. But to try to take out one of those three ingredients, 
and have it stand on its own, I think is really mm, not promising. So what we're doing here, and I think this never, message really never got through in the Shamatha Project, and that is in the cultivation of Shamatha, we're seeking to refine the mind, refine attention, refine introspection, so that finally we can start investigating the nature of the mind, the actual phenomena, states of consciousness, mental processes, directly bring a true empirical science not to behavior, the West already has that, not to the brain, the West does that very well, but actually to the mind. Take it on its own terms, attend to it closely, scrutinize it, investigate it, and make discoveries. So I have yet to read any scientific report on meditation that ever acknowledged that any discoveries are actually made through meditating. I have yet to read one where any meditator was actually interviewed. The only experts involved are the scientists. They're the only experts. Meditation teachers, whoever they are, ignored entirely. Who the meditators were, ignored entirely. And even what type of meditation is done, often completely dismissed. So there's only then one view, one way of knowing reality. And this would be my last point here, as I get off my soapbox, is this point I was making earlier. His name is Rob Bell. I checked it out again this renegade evangelical minister from Michigan that had the audacity to suggest that maybe Gandhi isn't in hell. You know, and really creating a lot of anger and indignation among his fellow evangelicals. But suggesting perhaps there's more than one way to salvation apart from the Christian and that Christ's atonement embraces humanity and not just those who adopt a very specific set of beliefs. So it's creating a lot of disturbance in that particular community. I have yet to hear of a scientist publicly proclaim, a neuroscientist, a cognoscientist, an academic cognoscientist, in print saying meditation might actually yield insights into the nature of the mind, the potentials of consciousness that we cannot discover, or at least have not thus far, may never discover, when we confine our inquiries just to behavior, brain, and questionnaires maybe meditation could actually yield insights into the mind and that should be embraced, integrated into scientific inquiry, into the nature of the mind. I have yet to read one. If you see it, please let me know. Clinical psychologists are more open because they're practical. They're actually dealing with people suffering. Academic psychologists, not so much. Academic neuroscientists, not so much. So I think these are deep issues. I think they're important issues. If I'm wrong, then let it be publicly proclaimed. There it is. Reflections on the day. Yeah. How's your practice going? Any questions, comments, or insights? Yes, we'll start with Rhonda. Oh, no, that's uh, uh, Trish. Trish. Rhonda's way of Yanda. And thank you, Lizzie. I have a, it's a theoretical question. About the continuity of consciousness? Yeah. So the substrate or subtle mind dissolves into Rigpa upon death. Oh, no, uh, okay, uh, mom- momentarily, in the clear mom- light of death. Momentarily. Yeah. And Rigpa is non-conceptual. Yes, that's for sure. Uh, non-dual. Certainly. Primordial consciousness. Indeed. So how is it that 
the continuity of consciousness is maintained uh -huh. through the bardo and with mm -hmm. the bakchak and into rebirth. Good. If continuity is conceptual, and yet it... Well, continuity is not conceptual. Okay. okay. Yeah. The substrate consciousness, bear in mind, if you realize the substrate consciousness clearly, now we experience it all the time. People experience the clear light of death. That doesn't mean the clear light of death, rikpa, that manifests at death. They experience it. That, that, that doesn't mean that they ascertain it. Right? One may experience, if you know, a person who has absolutely no art appreciation at all. Let's imagine such a person. And you may show him the most magnificent works of art of history. He experienced them. But he may not understand them at all. Get it at all. Or like marvelous classical music and so forth. Um, hear it, but you don't get it. Right? And likewise for poetry, literature and so forth. You may, get, you may experience it, but you don't get it. You just don't ascertain it. You just don't grok it. Right? So in a similar fashion, it said, I mean somewhat similar, not that similar. It said in the, in the dying process, after the blackout where your psyche your ordinary psyche, your ordinary coarse mind has dissolved into the substrate consciousness and you slip into, if you have not accessed this lucidly, then you just basically pass out for a short time anywhere from what was it said, six hours to three days. Remember that? Uh, where you're just in the substrate. You dissolve into the substrate and then that, in a way, something melts it away, you merge from it, could be very, very brief, but you experience something that most people do not ascertain, and that is this clear light of death. It's the dawning of this deepest dimension of consciousness. But for most people, it's very, very brief. It's a time of simply radical disorientation, of non-ascertainment. It gets veiled, and then there arises once again this, 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 this discrete content continuity of your subtle continuum of consciousness, or substrate consciousness, which then, then experiences the subsequent uh, transitional processes or bardos, the bardo of dharmata, of ultimate reality, followed by the, dharma, the, the bardo of becoming, which is the famous bardo where one wanders around like a ghost. So, but come back to the earlier point. When you ascertain the substrate consciousness lucidly, and the direct route for that, of course, is shamatha, then you recall its three salient characteristics. It is luminous, it's blissful, and it's non-conceptual. So that continuum when it's simply in its rest state, is non-conceptual. Does that mean when you're resting in that state that you are conceptually gagged, that you cannot possibly think because you're in the substrate consciousness? No, it doesn't mean that. Because bear in mind, once, you, once you've achieved shamatha and your mind is dissolved into the substrate consciousness, it's dissolved into a resting spot, a point of equilibrium that is at rest is non-conceptual. But now that you've achieved shamatha, you now have brought forth the five jhana factors, including course investigation and subtle analysis, together with well-being, bliss, and single-pointedness. And so all you have to do is start the engine, ignite, arouse your, your, your mind, and you can think. You can think. You can do, well, now one of the classic experiments run in Buddhism for, oh, it has to be at least 2,000 years, maybe longer, is resting in that substrate consciousness, kind of this field of potential, a bit kind of like a field of potential, because when you're just resting there, this is now straight from the, from the Theravada tradition, when you're just resting, and so I'll keep terminology, uh, how do you say, in accordance with that, you're resting now in the bhavanga, the bhavanga, which I'm saying is equivalent to the substrate consciousness. When you're just resting there, then you're resting in a non-conceptual space. Right? But you can arouse your attention and you can direct your attention backwards in time. You can see if you can recall something, like, you know, where did you wake up this morning? 
Phuket or in Idaho or San Francisco. You know, where did you wake up? That well, you can recall that. You can, but now you've got this laser-like mind, and you can direct it. You can give yourself a target. This morning, where did I wake up? That should be pretty easy. You nail it. You get it. So the the laser draw it taps into your memory, and here's a big difference between again modern mind science, materialistic modern mind science, and Buddhism. The materialistic view is that your memories are actually embedded in cells, embedded in cells, in neurons, in in complex configurations, but nevertheless, memories are in cells, complex configurations of them. That's a possibility. I think it's ludicrous, but I think it's a possibility. But it's... what, we would say, what I would say as a Buddhist, who's I think not entirely ignorant here, is that, all right, in a manner of speaking, one might talk that way without being ridiculous, but in the same way, information is carried in electromagnetic fields sent by your laptop. Because after all, you're sending a message, an email message to a friend. Where's the information? From the time you send it until it gets to your, your friend's laptop, when it's still in electro, electromagnetic field, phase, where's the information? You've just sent it. Beep, bye, and it's gone, right? Well, we would say that the information is in the electromagnetic field. But now if you look in the electromagnetic field, do you find any information at all in those photons or whatever you want, however you conceive of the electromagnetic field? It's not there. It's there only relative to consciousness that is the sender and the receiver. So be that as it may, Coming back to the substrate consciousness. I'm, I'm, I know I'm wa- wandering around a bit. Um, the substrate consciousness, in the Buddhist view, that is the repository of experiences, memories, and so forth, and not the brain. The brain is the, consists of the biological mechanism by which we activate it when we're operating out of coarse mind. And if the brain is damaged, or we've taken an LSD, or we're drunk, or diseased, mentally diseased, Alzheimer's, or what have you, the brain is no longer working, so therefore the memory stored in the substrate consciousness can't be accessed. Because your hardware, the brain, doesn't allow, allow you to get to them. Well, if you're in shamatha, if, you've, if you're resting in the substrate consciousness, then you can have access to those memories because the memories are actually stored in the substrate consciousness and not in the brain. Which means you can, act, you can arouse your attention, focus it where you will, you can, you can engage in thought and so forth. So, at at rest, it is conceptually silent, but you can arouse it into conceptual activity. But it's happily not of the obsessive and compulsive sort. Right? And so, in the, to come back to your question, and then to conclude, in the dying process, you're there unknowingly. For an ordinary person, you're there unknowingly in the substrate. because You don't know you're dead. You just black out. Right? And then following that, you have another period of unknowing where you're experiencing the clear light of death, but you don't know it. You don't ascertain it. You don't get any benefit from it. And so you're getting a glimpse of the infinite. But then the infinite gets collapsed again, and that subtle continuum of consciousness carries on for the next ride, for the next show. And the next show is the bardo of dharmata, of ultimate reality, very archetypal with one archetypal image after another, peaceful and wrathful deities and so on. That tends to be relatively short. Again, basically an ongoing flow of bewilderment and fear, because one is just seeing a bunch of images that one can't make sense of and, and just, just responds habitually, so it passes and then you just go into the bardo, the bardo of becoming, and once again one is bewildered because one doesn't know one is dead. One doesn't know one is in the bardo, and according to Tibetan, Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhist accounts, the beginning of it is very frustrating in the bardo. You might recall from the readings of it. 
uh, because you don't, you know, it's very much like in The Sixth Sense, the movie with uh, uh, Bruce Willis and that incredible young uh, boy actor, I can't remember his name, um, where you're dead and you just can't figure out why everybody's, you know, you don't know you're dead and you just can't figure out why everybody's ignoring you. You know, because you feel you're there. They should be seeing you. You can see yourself, you can see them, but of course they can't see you and so you feel everybody's snubbing you. Uh, that passes and it dawns on you for most people, apparently, with some shock and dismay that the reason that they're ignoring you is because you're dead. You know? And then you have to accustom yourself to that. And so that's how that happens. There's a continuity that experiences to wit- that is exposed to, that continuity is exposed to a much deeper dimension. It doesn't get it, it passes on. So this is why shamatha is explicitly and directly a method for being able to die lucidly up to the blackout and to be able to be dead lucidly. So shama is enough for that. But if you want to also be lucid with respect when the clear light of death arises, then you need more than shamatha. For that, you need certain Vajrayana practices, especially state of completion, uh, which manifests the innate mind of clear light, or Mahamudra or Dzogchen. And that's just what I know. I, I don't know much about outside of that. Those are the areas I am somewhat familiar with. And by those means, then you actually ascertain, while you're alive and well, your rikpa. So when it manifests, that pristine awareness, you ascertain it. And then you may be able to sustain that. And unlike abiding in shamatha, simply resting in the substrate consciousness, which is very pleasant, but profoundly not transformative. It's just treading water. Abiding in this non-dual realization of rikpa, that's profoundly transformative. So that's, that has intrinsic value, intrinsic meaning. Does that answer the question? So the subtle continuum consciousness is the bhavanga? In, in the, the Theravada. In the Theravada tradition, there, there's, there's debate here and I don't want to oversimplify things. So I would say, here's a position I'm taking, that having read the Theravada accounts of bhavanga, having read the Dzogchen accounts of the substrate consciousness, there are, there are so much similarities in multiple ways, when they manifest, how they're experienced, and so forth and so on, that I'm saying these two traditions independently, using different terminology and often different methods, are accessing the same dimension of consciousness, which is also called subtle continuum mental consciousness. And so coming back to the inter-Tibetan tradition, it is said, yes, there is continuity from one lifetime to the next, and we will call that continuity, the subtle continuum of mental consciousness, which is in, in Dzogchen called the substrate consciousness. And if that is equivalent to bhavanga, then the bhavanga is that which carries on from lifetime to lifetime. So I've chosen my words very carefully. Now, are, are there debates here? Are there debates? Yes, there are. And so I don't want to pretend that they don't exist, but there's, there's, there's my debating, debating position. Okay? I guess my confusion is that the subtle continuum, in, from what I understand, gets a glimpse of, of Rigpa, and yet it dissolves into Rigpa. It doesn't really dissolve into Rigpa. That is, when there, again, it's hard to... I don't think really, for us here in the waking state, operating out of course mind, I don't think we can really get what happens when one dimension of consciousness that we're not experiencing right now experiences another dimension of consciousness that we're also not experiencing right now. That's two steps of ignorance, right? And so it is a subtler dimension... And that is all that's left there is the substrate consciousness. So to say that it dissolves in, you know, the words always here are going to be inadequate. This is the problem. As soon as we, we cross the threshold from the effable to the ineffable, 
Okay? The substrate, oh, it's also a very, very rich and interesting area. Just let me, let me go into this one tangent. For a person who's never tasted anything sweet, the difference between milk chocolate and sugar cane might be very difficult to describe. Just because you don't, you've never tasted anything sweet. You know? So sweet is a category for which you have no reference. You just don't know what it refers to. You've never tasted. And so now it's suddenly there. So to a person who's colorblind, yellow versus red is ineffable. There's no amount of words that can, get, can convey, actually, what's, it, what's the difference between red and yellow? You know, or green and red? There's just, it's ineffable. There's no way to convey that by words or thought to a person who's born colorblind. Right? So there are some things that are relatively ineffable. Relatively ineffable. And colors to a colorblind person, sweet to a person who has you know, no taste or what have you, those are relatively ineffable. But then we come to this dimension of rikpa, and that is by nature ineffable, by nature inconceivable. It doesn't matter whether you're a Buddha, an Arhat, a Vidyadhara, or anybody else, you ventured into a realm that can never by anybody be captured by language or by thought. It's just in the very nature of the phenomenon itself. But it's so inconceivable. That's one of the, the highlights of a Buddha's mind, the highlights of, that is, salient features of rikpa, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. It's just, there is no possible way for any conceptual mind to wrap itself around it. But if that's the case, let's see if we can encroach. Say, okay, we'll give you that domain. That's the ineffable and inconceivable realm. But how does it relate to something I, how does it relate to substrate consciousness? Well, if we could, Say, that's effable, that's conceivable, then it's no longer inconceivable. If you take something that's by nature inconceivable and ask how does it relate to something that's conceivable, then you've made the relationship with conceivable, which now you've made that conceivable. Right? So it's problematic. It's problematic. Now, having said that, uh, this doesn't mean that we should just go all starry-eyed and say, oh, I guess I just have to believe. And this, this, this leads me to want to make one final comment about my earlier little soapbox oratory. And that is, one might draw from what I was saying is, therefore, you can't practice Buddhist meditation unless you believe in reincarnation and karma and the Four Noble Truths and the whole nine yards. You can't, can't do it because that's a Buddhist worldview on this Buddhist meditation. If you're not a full-fledged car-carrying Buddhist, then you can't practice Buddhist meditation. It's not true. It's not true. There are three qualities in a classic text called the Jipyapar, the 400, the 400 verses by Ayadeva. Ancient text, classic text, authoritative text, where Ayadeva says there are three qualities that are really needed if you're going to be a suitable follower of the Buddhist path. If this is going to be really a path for you, that you'll be able to venture along and really progress along that path. Three qualities only. And the first one is that one must be Karasa, the Jipyapa Naoliyade, Jipyapa. Zurne. Loden, Dunyerwe. Zurden, Lodendemba, Dunyerwa. Dunyerwa. One has three qualities. In Tibetan, the first one was one must be open minded. <laughs> That's not so easy. That's not easy. Open minded means you actually have to be willing to critically investigate your own assumptions. And some people would rather have their, all of their wisdom teeth extracted all at once with no anesthetic than have to actually question their own assumptions. The, the latter is far more painful. Existentially rattling. But if you're not open-minded, then there's no reason to venture into Buddhism. Or you do a bit of better meditation, it will help your golf swing. 
or something, some other hedonic pursuit that you actually value. So the first one is open-mindedness. The second one is lodanemma, which means one's perceptive. If one is dull-witted, inattentive, kind of just like that, then one can't very progress very well. One has to be perceptive. It doesn't mean one has to have a very high IQ, like there's some IQ you have to hit, but one has to be perceptive, attentive, engaged, really paying attention. Otherwise, this path is not for you. And the third one, dunyarwe, is one must have a real yearning to put the teachings into practice, to test them with experience. And if one has those three qualities, that's enough. That's sufficient. You don't have to already believe in reincarnation. You don't have to believe the Buddha realize this, that, or the other thing. You don't have to. You don't. You, sh- you just don't have to believe in anything. That is simply not a characteristic of Buddhism. There are Buddhist dogmatists that say you must, but they've, they've, they've lost the scent. So those three qualities are sufficient to venture into the practice. And so having said that, now this relates back to the earlier point of Rikpa being by nature inconceivable and ineffable, which means the way it interfaces with other aspects of reality. How does Rikpa, pristine awareness, or primordial consciousness, how does that relate to Dhammadhatu, the absolute space of phenomena? All one can say is non-dually, that is, with a negation. How does primordial consciousness relate to the yeshiki lung, or the energy of primordial consciousness? All one can say is a negation. Well, non-dually, inconceivably. So ultimate reality consists of three pieces, the space, energy, and consciousness. Now we just try to make it conceptual. We try to catch it in the net of concepts and drag it in, but, the, but it's like trying to catch water with a net. By, try, by the time you bring it on board, all you've got is the net and all the water remains in the ocean. So when we're trying to understand Rikpa internally with its different facets that we articulate, space, energy, consciousness, we can get some idea and then we can latch onto it and say, ah, now I've got you, I've got you. Well, no, we haven't. But it's not only in trying to conceptualize that dimension of reality, but trying to conceptualize how that reality interfaces with domains, multiple domains of reality that are accessible to concept and language, like substrate consciousness. To talk about it, say it has three qualities, well, it's true. Now, do we, know what, do we know what luminosity, what that word really means? What is the reference? What's the experience of luminosity that you have when you're resting in the substrate consciousness having achieved shamatha? No, we don't know it. We know what the word luminous means. We know bright, we need wakeful. So it's kind of like really awake. And then we speak of the bliss of the substrate consciousness. You mean like sex? Orgasm? Kind of a, no. And non-conceptuality, well, that's kind of like, you mean no concepts? Yeah. But what you're doing right now is thinking about having no concepts. So not that. Right? So the substrate consciousness is in a way not graspable by a person who's not experienced it, and yet it's, it can be talked about much more readily than pristine awareness. But now the interface between substrate consciousness and rikpa, does substrate consciousness really dissolve into it? If we do, then we've just captured rikpa in the snare of concepts. If we say, I gotcha, that's what substrate consciousness dissolves into. Like, right? Like an ice cube into a warm sea. Ah, gotcha. Except for no. So... All of this could sound like, okay, now we're into mystical mumbo-jumbo. Let's strip that off and get back to the brass tacks of, you know, meditation. Uh, So the prospects are very dim for actually being able to comprehend what happens at that point 
from the, from the perspective of a coarse conceptual mind, which is where we're talking right now, the prospects from that perspective, understanding what exactly happens after the blackout period and then to the clear light of death, and then the bardo of the Dhammata, um, what's that like? And it's inaccessible to the coarse conceptual mind, but now does that mean it's simply inaccessible and it's a matter of blind faith? or simply believing on the authority of this, of the Tibetan Book of the Dead or Padmasambhava or somebody else. And the good news is that that which is inaccessible to conceptual mind is conceptual to the non-conceptual mind. So the substrate consciousness itself, we can talk about it, we can talk about it, but these words, here we have a strategy. Shamatha is exactly a strategy for realizing through your own immediate personal experience what it's like to experience the substrate consciousness. Right? And then you come out of it and then you might try to articulate to other people what it was like. And insofar as they have meditative experience, they'll kind of get it. The more meditative experience, even if your experience is beyond theirs, they'll kind of get it because they've had spikes. And a number of you have already experienced this. As you're practicing, even in the first two weeks, a number of you already have reported to me in, your, in the meetings that we have. Some have slipped in for a short time into a real flow of non-conceptuality, a real taste of samadhi. Some have experienced, there was a lovely phrase I heard today, an ex- a flow of loveliness, one person said. That's sukha. Okay? The sem sechikpa, the single-pointedness of mind, that's a array of a jhana factor coming out of the substrate consciousness. And when we get that in the first two weeks, you don't get it for four hours, but you get it for maybe five, ten minutes. That's pretty cool. You may experience bliss. Somebody came in recently said, practicing such and such a practice, giving rise to bliss. That was the word chosen. That's, that's pretty, pretty. has a sharp edge to it, something blissful. And so before one achieves shamatha, it's not, it's not blind faith, blind belief. Oh, thank goodness, my blind faith was right. It's a trajectory where we're getting these spikes, these shafts of light of the dhyana factors and also these three salient characteristics. They do overlap, of course, of bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. And they're coming up. They're coming up in surges. And they come up in different surges for different people at different times, different duration, and so forth. But we get a flavor. It's almost like coming near the kitchen, which we'll do oh, very shortly. And we're just, when you just turn the corner there, if you have a good nose and it's pointing in the right direction, you may already get a whiff of, oh. It's not the same as eating, but you kind of get it. And if the chef you come out and tell you, this is what we're serving, even though you haven't tasted it, maybe it's a new dish you've never tasted, by getting the scent, you say, ah, yeah, 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 I want some. I want some, you know? And so along the path of shamatha, we get these these foretastes of what will come in the full meal, the main course, when you sit down and practice shamatha. And likewise in the practice of Mahamudra, the practice of Dzogchen, the practice of authentic Zen or Chan, because these two are oriented towards the realization of Buddha nature. And they're, they're noble ancient traditions, ones I don't know, know such, so much about, but that doesn't mean they're any less. It's just that's my, my study and practice is not extended that far. But they too, in all of these practices, as in the practice of shamatha, you will get the fragrance, intimations, spikes, glimpses, shafts of light coming from substrate consciousness in authentic practice of Mahamudra, Dzogchen, and so forth, you get shafts, you get shafts of light. And they're non-conceptual, but they are the taste. And they give you a foretaste of what they're coming attractions. Okay? So that was long answer to a wonderful question. Maybe that's enough for now. Yeah? So enjoy your meal. And enjoy the fragrance before you ever get there.